Welcome to the Cocktail Lovers Podcast. I'm Sandra. And I'm Gary. And together, we are the Cocktail Lovers. We're a married couple and we've been writing about cocktails for the past 12 years. But this is the place where we'll be talking about cocktails. We're going to be talking about products. We're going to be talking about books. And we're going to be talking about the bars that we love and we think that you'll love too. We'll also be checking in with some of the biggest names in the industry and asking them to share their top tips with us to help you up your mixing game at home. We like to think of ourselves as your new best friends cocktail wise so let's hear what's on the show this week yes we love celebrating global cocktail culture and all the great people and places doing fantastic things in the drinks world but we are both born and bred londoners so as we're smack bang in the middle of london cocktail week this episode has something of a nod to our hometown Our product reviews, taking gins from East London, from the appropriately named East London Liquor Company, and West London, from Sipsmith. Our book of choice, from London-based flavour expert Zoe Burgess, is The Cocktail Cabinet, the art, science and pleasure of mixing the perfect drink. And our special guest is Nick Strangeway, who started his career bartending at some of the capital city's most iconic bars in the 1980s and 90s, before going on to become a major player in the cocktail world. As for bars, this week we're going with not one, but more than 300 bars, because, as we said, it is London Cocktail Week and there's a whole lot of bar action going on. But first, we are the cocktail lovers, so let's make ourselves a cocktail. Okay, London special, you say? London special? Everything today, we're talking London. Okay, well, we've got a great drink here, which is an original drink created by Pete Geary in Hawksmoor, Spitalfields. I don't even know how long ago it was. It was quite a, quite a while back, I think. Yeah, it's. Um, but he was inspired by a visit to Hayes Wharf, which is on the South Bank, and it was a cocktail competition that he was entering. And this drink is called Shaky Pete's Ginger Brew, and it combines London dry gin, it combines ginger, lemon juice, and... Special London Pride Ale. So two big London ingredients. Yeah, exactly. And created by a London bartender who no longer lives in London, but this is his legacy. Let's not split hairs over that. (laughs) His legacy and love letter to London. I've done a little Blue Peter bit and done some of the ingredients earlier. What you prepared earlier. I prepared earlier and they're just waiting to be blended. So we have... Per serve, 50 mils of homemade ginger syrup. How did you make that? It's just some ginger, freshly peeled and sliced, and some sugar and some water, and you boil it down, sieve it off, and it's got this lovely sort of fiery little kick to it. Mm. I'll give the exact measurements on the show notes. So that's some homemade ginger syrup. So we've got 50 mil per serve, 50 mil of freshly squeezed lemon juice and 35 mil of gin. And we're using Beefeater because it is a London dry gin and it's still distilled and made in London. So as I said, those ingredients are actually in the blender now. Standing by. And I'm just going to go over to the kitchen. The the kitchen And so you'll hear, hear some new sound effects for us. It's not shaking, not stirring, but blending. Right, so I can now commentate on this as I've done in the past. Sandra's vacated her seat. She's walked into the kitchen area and we are now standing by. Oh, and there it goes. There goes the blender. Yep. Oh, yep. Giving it a good old blitz there. Right, okay. That sounded good. She's now returned with blender in hand. She's removing the lid. I feel <laughs> like I'm you. commentating on a sporting event. Beautifully here. commentated. So we've still got some little shards of ice in here, which is exactly what we want. It's lovely and frothy. And it's got a lovely um, little lemony hue to it, which is the ginger and mm. the lemon. I can smell it. That's yeah, smelling. so we're dividing that between our two beer glasses which we have frozen they've got a nice frosting on them yes as per the instructions refreshing i think is the word yes and now we have 
the London Pride. Oh, there goes the cap off the yeah. bottle. So it's a hundred mil of London Pride, which we top each of these drinks with. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, beer in cocktails. It's not. Com- it's it's not the most common of things. No, but it works beautifully. Yeah. So I'm just going to. Bring that through a little bit Just to combine. Stirring that through. Thank you. Oh, that looks good. It really nice does. Nice little look head good. on it as well. Yes. Mm. So let's cheers. Let's do a cheers. Lovely in frozen glasses. Mm. Shaky peaks ginger brew. Mm. Oh, we love that. Mm. And this is still, I think, still on the menu at Hawksmoor. It's one of their best selling drinks. Yeah. Can you see why? Taste exactly. Why. It's perfect yeah. in the summer, but delicious all mm. year round. So. Happy London Cocktail Special. So as we said at the beginning of this episode, we are looking at two gins, two London gins. And my choice is from a company that set up around about eight years ago in East London. And this is the area of Bow and Victoria Park around there. And they are called East London Liquor Company. Brilliant. And they've got a nice ethos, which is to produce decent booze for decent people at decent prices. I love that. I mean, you can't say fairer than that, really, can you? It's a good ethos, Mm. something you want to go for. So I'm liking the sound of that. And interestingly, at their headquarters in the East End, they produce gin, vodka and whiskey. But I'm focusing today on the gin and they actually produce a number of expressions. But this is the most recent of those expressions. And it's a nice collaboration. And it goes by the name of the East London Q Gin. That's Q as in uh, Kew Gardens. Ah. So they've tied up with the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. And during one of the lockdowns, the head distiller got together with the chief botanist at Kew. And together they selected some really interesting fresh botanicals. So significantly um, fresh Douglas fir and lavender that are handpicked by the botanist. And now he picks these every so often and they get sent over to East London to go into this gin. Nice. And the other thing I should say about this gin is I'm just going to read you what's on the back of the packaging. It says, there's no booze without bugs. East London Liquor Company and Royal Q Gardens are raising a glass to the plants and pollinators of the world without which we wouldn't have the botanicals that make this collaboration special. So it's a sort of thank you to to bugs because people, as they say, people talk a lot about bees and rightly so Mm -hmm. making sure they're protected. But this is other bugs if you like uh, now interesting so how does the bugs part come into it well, they're not infused in the no no, no it's about uh, the it's, it's about the pollination and right. things like that of, okay of these um, botanicals mm. and also which i think is a nice touch uh 10 of the royalties from the sales go back to q which helps support their work in science and protecting something like sixteen thousand species of plant wow so yeah great so moving on to the the gin in question they've got it's a really nice packaging it's got the distinctive sort of stripped back look of all the east london liquor company products the bottle is that's clear it's almost like a wine bottle yeah it doesn't look like a gin bottle it is very it it isn't a wine bottle isn't it yeah and i think that plays nicely back to their sort of keeping it simple Mm. so it's like as i say like a wine bottle but it's got this nice logo it's got their distinctive east london liquor company gin but augmented with lots of really nice sort of botanical illustrations of plants and bugs. Is, is this, a, is this a limited look. edition then? I don't think so. It didn't say anything when I was checking it out. Mm. It didn't say limited edition. So I think it's a, a new expression. I love that. Expression. I, I really like this um, illustration on that. It's really bold. You've got this just like three big letters on there, gin. Yes. And then East yeah. London Liquor Company underneath. And then beneath that is a lovely, um, the logo of the Q Royal Botanic Garden. So yeah. beautiful, really nice and bright and bold and looking forward to opening that right, one. Well, let's do that mm. one right on Q. So I'm just going to break the seal if I can. It's always that thing. I get all fingers and thumbs it's nice having that um long neck as well isn't it i think you're talking about me or the bottle (laughs) both actually (laughs) but for the bottle you know just for an easy pour 
you know, because some gin bottles can be quite stubby yeah. and it can be hard for you to, to grip them. So having a little bit of a fight with the, oh, the label. Yeah. There, but not <laughs> Do the you label. know it's authentic when, uh, when I go can't quiet when I'm seal. trying to get that right. I've, yeah, got, it. Exactly. I've got it off. Oh, oh, there goes the cork. I've popped the cork. Popped your cork. Popped your cork. Wait, let me just pour us a little. Is, is it um, slightly coloured or, or is that from the label that I'm seeing? Or is the bottle yeah, a, a sort of pinkish colour? It has got a pinkish sheen yeah. in the bottle, but. No, I don't think it is, no, because when so, you actually see it in the glass, it isn't, is it? No, no. I think so it's probably was, that um, yeah. that purple Yeah, it's thing. like, well, it's very, very subtle, but I don't know if it, maybe it is the glass. But anyway, let's have a... It's nice and fresh. Mm. Lovely. It's not It's not like juniper forward in, in that way that you get that punch of juniper no. on the nose. It's very nice and rounded, isn't it? Mm, very tingly and mm. fresh, I think. Maybe that is the Douglas fir because it's not. A, yeah, yeah, it's a bit sweeter as well, mm. which it's not not sickly sweet, but no. just a little bit sweeter. Um, yeah, thing and it's forty two percent ABV, so that probably contributes to that kind of creaminess. <laughs> yeah, are you getting well. some of the lavender? I think that's yes. part of that sweetness, in the finish, isn't it? Yeah, it's very, it's very sippable. Isn't mm, it? It's lovely. And what what do they say? Have they got some serves for this? I think it's classic gin recipes. Martinis. Martinis. I think mm. this would make a really nice gin and tonic, yeah. actually. That, Lovely and yeah. crisp. Beautiful. I, I think it's a good homage to the um, Kew Gardens yeah. because it has got a bit of more botanical feel yeah, to it, yeah, it yeah. seems. And um, really, I really enjoy that. So how much is this? This is for a 70cl bottle. And it also comes, I should say, in a nice gift box as right. well. And that is £34.50. So I think they've lived up to their ethos really well. This is a really lovely gin. And I think £34.50 is pretty damn good. Yeah, definitely. East London Liquor Company, we salute you. Right, so now we're going west with my choice of, of gin. Actually, over to Chiswick. It's the home of Sipsmith Gin, which actually was conceived in 2007 yeah. by two friends, Sam Goldsworthy and Fairfax Hall. They both loved martinis. They, I think they were business people, actually. But then they met up with Jared Brown, good friend right, yeah. of ours, and also everybody in the gin world. Loves loves a bit of Jared Brown, <laughs> but they paired up with Jared, yeah. and their mission was to create the world's best London dry wow, gin. That's, that's a, a good, big old mission, that's a isn't good it? Good old mission to give absolutely. Also, and to put it in context, when did you say two thousand seven? Well, listen, I yeah. know what you're going to say. There were no small distilleries no. in London at that time. It was very much we used to have lots and lots and lots of distilleries, and then they all sort of went out of business oh, when you say we used to have we're talking like hundreds hundreds of years, of years in yeah. the the sort of gin days you yeah know? yeah but in this time when they actually conceived this idea they weren't allowed to actually distill because they were doing small batch gins right and it wasn't until 2008 and thanks to this team that they actually changed the law for distillers to obtain a license for having a still that was under 1800 oh, litres. Wow. So this is when you started to see the real proliferation of millions, of, well, not millions, not but millions. quite <laughs> quite, quite a few, lot yeah, yeah. of London yeah. distilleries like East London Liquor Company. Yeah, yeah. They would not have mm. been able to produce their gin before this time. So their still at Sipsmith was only 300 litres. So they petitioned and they actually became the first copper pot still distillery to open in London since 1820. Wow. So, you know, that was big. Big, big thing. Yeah. And I, I remember at the time there was so much news about, you know, yes. the first distillery, you know, copper yeah. st distillery. Um, so, so that was great. And it paved the way for lots of independent makers. In 2009, they actually perfected the recipe. And the rest, as they say, is history. So now, and they're always innovating. They're adding lots of different expressions. Yes. They have vodkas. And we've tried a few. Yeah. Ideas, and and also they yeah. have a lovely blog. And I would say to go to it because they've got lots of tips, lots of recipes, all sorts of fabulous. And, and we there. also, on one of the very early episodes of this podcast, we did feature their 
cocktail book. Yes, which was yes. All, all all gin cocktails made with just with three, three ingredients. ingredients. So yeah, absolutely, and well. it's still one that we love. Mm. And also now they're one of the B Corp companies, so they're always trying to improve and do great things yeah. for for the industry. So we're not going to go for the normal gin, you know, mm. their London dry gin that is beautiful and everybody knows it and loves it. That's stood we the certainly test do. of time. Yeah, absolutely. What I'm going for this time is one of their expressions so they have lots of different ones they've got lemon drizzle they've got slow gin they've got zesty orange they've got mm-hmm. the vjop which is a very juniper something gin yeah. i can't remember yeah. which is beautiful but this one is orange and cacao oh that's like a marriage made in heaven well it already, is it? you know the, we did do i think we did do a jaffa cake gin and it's called jaffa cake <laughs> yeah, gin yeah, on yeah. this before. Oh, no, i got very excited but this is yeah. you know I'd, I'd say it's the uber version yes you know yes, so yes. it is let me see what the so it's 40 percent volume it's beautiful sipsmith trades trademark um they're always logo, gorgeous those labels with they? a lovely orange la- yeah. logo so it really does shine out as being orange Mm. So orange this, and chocolate, orange and mm, chocolate, mm, mm, mm. and also this is a lovely time for orange and chocolate because it's autumnal. You know the colours, yeah. even in your mind, the colours are great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This time of year, and Ooh. I'll give you your little taste. Thank you very much. Tell me what. Yeah, That's got that nice lovely orange. It, yes, that lovely orange on the nose. I Ooh. mean, you could just Ooh. keep nose in this for ages without yeah. even sipping it and just teasing yourself yeah. with... having said that i am gonna sip it really <laughs> you can nose of away course. all you like yeah let's see so mm. Mm. oh that's great and yes it's got the right balance of everything it's yeah. got the chocolate not too sweet so it isn't i think the one that we had before the jaffa cake gins that was much more chocolatey this has got chocolate but it's because it's cacao, I think it's less sweet. It's, it's quite subtle. I mean, I'm getting, I get the orange up front. Yes, almost, yes. almost like a an, a triple set kind of. Yes, absolutely. Thing. And then it kind of gives way to that little bit of chocolate. That's the hint of it. Yes, in the finish. It's but it's more subtle. dark rather mm. than milk chocolate, isn't Ooh, it? This is gorgeous. Yeah, and yeah. they've also done something really nice, which is added a little bit extra juniper, so it's got that lovely. You know, it's adult chocolate, you know, yeah. that sort of And thing. I like to think we fit into that category. Oh, just about, you know, yeah. I don't know about you. I'm just nudging up to that. <laughs> <laughs> and and also they've sweetened it. So the little bit of sweetness that you get is from licorice. So it's right. not like sugar, sugar. It's yeah, yeah. just like a lovely, agreeable sweetness, mm. I think. I like so, this yeah, the botanicals that they have is orange blossom and then the cacao nibs. And then it's rested in fresh orange zest. And the result is this sumptuous treat. Mm. So this is £25 for a 50cl bottle. And I would say, get yours in now, just before Christmas. Have it, or even for Halloween, how wonderful would this be? I think you can just sit this neat, but I'm sure that there's some also gorgeous treats that you can conjure up with this as well. So I think two fantastic Mm. gins from different parts of London. West and East doing fantastic stuff. And now for a cocktail hack from one of our experts. My name is Anna Sebastian and I'm a hospitality consultant. My cocktail hack is really, really simple. You know, at the end of the day, we're making cocktails. You shouldn't have to invest a huge amount of money into buying fancy cocktail equipment unless you want to. There's some great alternatives that you have in your home, everything from utensils. But for a cocktail shaker, if you don't have one, the best thing to do is, whether it's a kilner jar or a jam jar, you could use that as a cocktail shaker. It does the same thing. Just make sure it's really, really secured on top so it doesn't go everywhere. But you could just put all of the ingredients in and shake it together with ice to chill it down and then pour it out into your glass. And most importantly, enjoy it. London Cocktail Week. We are, well, probably about in the middle of it, I would say. Yes, yeah. yeah. So we missed the beginning, but we've been there and checking out lots of different things. But just because of the way that our podcast falls, this is where we're catching up with what is left to be enjoyed yeah, of London and Cocktail let's face Week. It, there's, there's a few more days. There's and still a, plenty of a stuff. A whole weekend. So, 
yeah, London Cocktail Week. It's um, I can't believe it. It launched in 2010, I think. It's a great way to explore the London bar scene. Oh my and, god, yeah. it's the best way to explore <laughs> London's bar scene. And I think um, you know, over the years, it's it's evolved, it's changed. They've tr- tried different things out. This year, the way they're doing it, which is really interesting, and they they've got four what they're calling micro hubs. So they're they're like little cocktail villages, and they are in Devonshire Square in Shoreditch, Covent Garden, Borough Yard in London Bridge, and Belgravia. So they're kind of covering off different points of the campus in London. And um, the way it works, as ever, is you you want to get your hands on a a wristband, and they cost, I believe, Mm £15. But then uh, it gives you access to the £7 signature cocktails at some of 300 plus participating bars yeah and and it's worth noting that the bars are everything from hotel bars to dive bars they're in the north west south and east so wherever you are in london you will have a chance to access uh, various bars so yes you can go to your favorites but this is the best time to try out lots of different ones and also maybe try them in different areas that you might not usually go yeah yeah i was going to say that because we us londoners we can be a little bit like tribal we, yeah we stay mm. in our area yeah. so it's like you know take a deep breath and cross take the, the river plunge, or absolutely go east go west and also know. worth noting that it it's london cocktail week but it actually ran for 10 days yes. so or is running for 10 days yeah. so don't let the week fool you you've no. actually got a bit of a bonus because yeah. there's more days in it to to get enjoying indeed so there's <laughs> loads and loads of bars and there's also all sorts of other pop-ups masterclasses yeah, and events. So, I mean, we can't go through every single one of the 300 bars. You can do that yourselves by logging on to the londoncocktailweek.com for, for all of the bars that are taking place. And as I say, it is worth swapping some in, just looking at some that, you know, think, oh, that sounds interesting. Let me give that a go. Get all of your friends to buy a £15 wristband because you can only have a £7 cocktail if all of you are wearing the wristband. Yes. You can have one on your own if, you, if you're the only person with the wristband. But if you want to really enjoy and the conviviality of London Co- to with all of your friends your friends your family people you don't like even just get them by in the bar the uh, wristband and then just get yourself down to these different bars and as i say there are various events taking place lots have already happened but still from today which is the 20th you've got an opportunity to delve into the world's most rubbish bar from discarded spirits <laughs> now it doesn't say it isn't exactly like that they used to using some amazing spirits we which we highlighted on this podcast yeah right in the first episode so it's very sustainable zero waste cocktails from some of the world's leading bars and you can taste some of these amazing really creative cocktails and there's going to be a discarded disco and that is at the barge house on the south bank so that's one in the south in the east, there's a, a brilliant cocktail tasting experience at Thai and Elementary with Eminente Rum. So that's a, a really good time. If you've never been to this bar, this is a great time to, to get down there and, and taste some of this amazing rum because all of the things that they do at Thai are always very experimental. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. Not experimental, I would just oh, say clever yeah, and, and creative, yeah. and, but and, really and accessible as yeah. well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Another one on the 20th is the tequila masterclass with Patron, one of our favourite tequilas. This is where you can join their brand ambassador Gianluca Pavanello in an exploration of tequila Patron. And that's going to be at the little cocktail village in Devonshire Square, which yeah. is the, the village in the, the, the sort of east, but more city, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, uh, oh, nice one here. Um, the Bombay Sapphire Premier Crew Dinner with the mm. master distiller, Dr. Anne Brock. And this is a chance where you can talk to her, listen to her talking about the making of this delicious gin and also it's all going to be paired with some beautiful food and that's uh, one of our favorite restaurants Sager and Wild in Bethnal Green there's what else so this is on the 20th we've got Hennessy times TT Liquor masterclasses where the TT Liquor team team up with Hennessy 
to create some really nice cocktails. On the 21st, we've got Grey Goose Martini Masterclass, which I think is always masterclasses around martinis are always great. (laughs) And this is at 12th Knot at Sea Containers on the South Bank see what else for non-alcoholic it's not just all about alcohol and yeah, i think worst, that's really good that, yeah. yeah so um there's everleaf which again we have We've reviewed on, on, on podcast, the podcast yeah. so there's an everleaf spritz masterclass at the conduit which is a beautiful um, members only place so a nice chance to get into sneak into to sneak in there place, yeah. Also, Olmeca Altos Tequila Cocktail Masterclass. So that's great. That's at Juju's. Um, I'm getting exhausted just yeah, exactly. because there really is so much. Yeah, and um, so Engine much. Gin, which is another new yeah, gin we, and we've something. Done that. We've One done on the that. Podcast, yeah. and, and this masterclass is teaching you how to make the perfect um, Engine G and T yeah. and win special prizes. Ooh. That's at All Star Lanes Love in a special prize. Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> Moe and Chandon Champagne Masterclass. Nice one, yeah, that. That's one uh, for you, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Um, that's at Kaluka Lane. That's on the 22nd. And then lastly, on the 22nd, there's a Whistlepig Masterclass at Maison Azeline, which we love as mm. well. That's a beautiful place. Great, great um, rye whiskey and a wonderful venue. So, you know, there's, and those, those are just a few on those yeah. last few days, but also at the little villages that you were talking yes. about. There's lots of different events and, and um, sort of pop-up bars around there. It's definitely there. worth wherever you are heading to start in your journey at one of those little villages, yes. I would say. And, and you know, just joining in and tasting some delicious drinks. So, as always, even though there is a temptation to go completely bonkers, do drink responsibly yes. and, and really enjoy the crafting of these cocktails in some of London's amazing bars and the events by some of our favourite brands and brand ambassadors there's a brand new issue of the cocktail lovers magazine available now and it's the storytelling issue in it we take a look at some of the fascinating fun intriguing and perhaps mythical stories of the cocktail world's people places products and much much more you can get your copy in print or digital by simply going to thecocktaillovers.com slash magazine Book of choice this week is The Cocktail Cabinet, The Art, Science and Pleasure of Mixing the Perfect Drink by Zoe Burgess. Yes, and she is one of our contributors to the magazine. So that's not the only reason we're picking this up. It's because it's a bloody good book, isn't it? It is. It is. And uh, Zoe is um, London based and she describes herself as a flavour expert, which I think is kind of interesting. Mm. Not not a bartender or mixologist, Mm. but a flavour expert. And I think that's really turns out to be quite significant in this book. Uh, she's sort of studied art. She worked in the world of chocolate. And now she's had 10 years of work in the, the drinks development world. Yeah, she's worked with some great people, hasn't she? She really has. Mm. Yeah, she's worked with Heston Blumenthal, of course. Yes. And that's an ongoing. He of the spectacles. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she co-founded uh, Untitled Bar. Yes. And so, yeah, she's done all sorts of really interesting collaborations and projects. So back to the book itself. I think given that she is a flavour expert, there is something of a sort of slightly scientific approach to this. Mm. Slightly scientific. Mm. But having said that, at the same time, she's made it very approachable because her tone of voice in the book is very approachable. And as I say, I think it's the book is best summed up by that, that description, the art, science and pleasure of mixing the perfect drink. So what it is, and I think this is really interesting, it's like a sort of, she takes us on a journey. And I think with a lot of, cocktail books um i like probably like loads of people i i dive straight into the cocktail recipe section because that's where that's you, the meat and potatoes the meat and potatoes <laughs> of the cocktail world yeah um, but i think certain books do benefit from reading from beginning to end and mm. this is one of those books and as i say she sort of takes us on this journey and for me it reminds me a bit of once upon a time when i was first starting to enjoy cooking 
cooking food, I'd sort of slavishly follow recipes in books. And that was great. And I still like following recipes. Mm. But as I got more confident, you sort of learn, um, for me, I learned how to, to cook more. So you you felt like you could improvise yeah. and change things around. And, as long oh, as you know the basics. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And it took a while for me to kind of get that confidence. And I think that's what she's sort of doing in this drinks book is she's, um, that's why I say read it from the, the from cover to cover in a sense, because she sort of teaches you about things. Uh, yeah, she goes through equipment and uh, techniques and stuff, but it's all with uh, giving you an understanding of the why behind this exactly the why Mm. so yeah that so that's you know an outline of the book i mean in terms of the way it looks it's very very clean i love the i love the cover that's really vivid red isn't it and and also with jumps out at you yeah little spheres of color that like little ice balls in a highball glass but very beautifully and simply put together but it really does jump off the shelf i think yeah it looks a little bit different yeah right? exactly mm. so there is a hint of the scientific about it yes but not too not too geeky i no, would say no. so and yeah that, it's lovely and i think that's sort of reflected in the look inside as well because mm. very cleanly designed there's some beautiful photography but again it's not purporting to be lifestyle photography there it's almost like look this is a drink and you kind of gives you an idea of how if you're making that drink gives you an idea of what you should be aiming for the finished drink to look like yeah which it's not um there's not a photo for every single no. drink but for most drinks or there's a little illustration so at least you get a guideline of what it should look like and the glassware that um it should be served in so yeah, I like yeah, that. Yeah, it works really well. And I mm. think, as I say, it kind of teaches you, as you said, the, the why behind. And that's so it leads you on your journey through to when you sort of, if you like, mastered a few of those drinks, you can start looking at things like, for instance, she's got, you know, once you've made made a gimlet, why not uh, take out the, the lime cordial and start experimenting with your own different flavour cordials in, mm. a, in a gimlet or uh, things like a tea martini. Also, she's got like an espresso. I like this, an espresso martini with no espresso. So mm. it's sort of showing you. So it's a martini. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's got a coffee liqueur in. Right. Uh, and it's got more of that. So anyway, uh, it's it's a way. She, so it becomes by the foot. By the time you get to this part of the book, which is towards the end, she's giving you hacks right. of things like. if you We love a hack. We love a mm. hack. So if you haven't got this ingredient use that right. or look in your store cupboard for you know this fruit or this jam or whatever and you can switch that into the recipe so as i say i think it works really well it takes you on a nice journey and uh, i really like this book good so that's um zoe burgess's what was it called the cocktail cabinet yeah the cocktail cabinet the art science and pleasure of mixing the perfect drink and it is published by octopus books and it retails at the price of £20. Marvelous. Details, as ever, on the Cocktail Lovers website. Both an innovator and drinks historian, Nick Strangeway is one of the OGs of the Cool Britannia London bar scene. Having started his career working with the legendary Dick Bradsell, He went on to manage the award-winning Shea before moving into the consultancy world, devising concepts and menus for a range of top restaurants and hotel bars, and also developing a collection of small batch vodkas for Absolu. Along the way, he's managed Hawksmoor, which picked up Best New Restaurant Bar in its first year, and he's also been awarded International Bartender of the Year, both at Tales of the Cocktail. Nick's latest role is co-founder and designated cocktail and spirit creator at Heppel Spirits, which produces gin, amongst a few other things, in Northumberland National Park. Nick's latest role is co-founder and cocktail and spirit creator at Heppel Spirits, which we'll touch on in our conversation, but mostly our chat is about the London bar scene then and now, and we can't wait to hear his stories. Nick, Welcome to the Cocktail Lovers Podcast. Oh, it's wonderful to join you two guys from here in rainy Denmark. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic to see you there. So, yeah, thanks for joining us. And uh, Nick, I'm not going to ask your age, but you've been on the, the cocktail scene for some considerable time. So I'm sure you've seen all sorts of changes over that time. But could we take you right back to 
when you first started and tell us a little bit about those early days. Yeah, if we go back to ground zero, it would have been 1987, I think, if my memory serves me correctly. And I moved down to London to go to university. And I was getting a grant back then. You still got your grants and, you know, my accommodation, halls of residence, food in the hall of residence. But I obviously needed to work. And I had seen in a copy of something like the Face magazine or ID that I'd been reading as a sort of like, you know, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, that a new private members club was going to open in Soho called Fred's. And so I just rocked up there and said I wanted a job. <laughs> as you did back in the day. That's what you did back in the day. You know, you know, I was 18. I had no experience. They couldn't expect me to have experience. I had previously worked in a wine shop as a sort of like Saturday job from about the age of 15 illegally. So I knew a little bit about alcohol and I'd drunk quite a lot of alcohol by this point <laughs> in my life. Um, but, you know, I, I met Dick and I met Fred and they said, you can come work here. There were no real jobs. So I got a job as a pot wash. Yeah, and, and that was just to say that was Dick Bradsell, yeah? Yeah, that's Dick Bradsell, yeah. I'll, I'll refer to Dick quite a lot. And if anybody hears me saying that, it is the legendary Dick Bradsell because I worked with him on and off for many, many years. And so I worked in the pot wash of this private members club and I quickly graduated. I worked upstairs and it was like a horseshoe-shaped bar with a kitchen the size of a toilet behind it and it was an open kitchen. So I saw all the customers. So I spent a lot of time wandering out, delivering plates of stuff. Um, and clearing away all the glassware, etc. It was, you know, a pretty crappy job, but it was a very exciting job because of the guests we had coming in there. And I quickly decided I didn't want to be in the pot wash, and I didn't want to wash glasses because it's a bit tedious and dirty and hot and sweaty. So I decided I wanted to be a bartender because it seemed to be much more glamorous. And credit to Dick. You know, Dick was amazing at nurturing talent, and he had no, pro- you know, at that time I probably had bleach blonde hair and, you know, wasn't, you know, was a probably slightly spotty elderly teenager with a lot of attitude. But he, you know, he assembled teams that were like this. Again, it reminds me of when I read Kitchen Confidential and you hear him talking about this band of pirates. There were Everybody who worked on the bar was so cool in my eyes. I mean, I was young and naive. They weren't, if I think about it in retrospect. But it seemed very, very glamorous. So I really wanted to get out of the pot wash, basically, area. And it happened very quickly. Within six months, I was helping them on the bar. And then very quickly, the bartender who had been in the upstairs bar left. And I knew the drinks. You know, it was, you know I did, did quite good training sessions for everybody. So I knew what the drinks were. I knew the customers. And so I, they, were to, they told me, you can work in the bar if you want. Not on, not on the glamorous main bar in this horseshoe area upstairs. And so it became my domain. So I worked there five nights a week. I didn't really bother going to university. I used to send a dictaphone to university and listen to my lectures on the way into work and on the way back from work. And then I basically got expelled from the university at the end of the first year because I hadn't shown up. But I passed my exams, so they couldn't technically throw me out. How did you pass your exams? Because I did study. I mean, I enjoyed the reading. And so I would go into the university and I'd go sit in the library during the daytime and read, but I never went to a lecture. I never met my tutors. I would just be seen ghosting around this beautiful building. It was the building that is now Home House. It was the Courtauld Institute and that beautiful building that Home House is was the university building I was in, which was partly why I chose to go there because it was very glamorous looking and the libraries were dusty old rooms that people had never been into for years. I used to go sit in them and read and then I'd go to work. And then, you know, bars were very different back then. You know, it was, there was, I worked in this private members club, but it was not a sort of like stuffy old reform club style members club. It was for the advertising industry, the art world, the musicians, etc. You know, and I clearly remember a night when I was probably 19 working on this horseshoe bar upstairs and I had Francis Bacon bought me a bottle of Bollinger. I had David Bowie drinking drinks on the end of the bar. And I was like, why would I want to go back to To (laughs) when I'm sitting amongst all the people I admire and conversing with them and having this wonderful lifestyle? And it was about the lifestyle. I mean, I didn't get into it because I wanted to bartend. And nobody, with the exception of Dick, in this bar wanted to work in the business. They were all about to do something else, become an actor. They were musicians. They were whatever they were, they were ballet dancers. It was a very diverse set of people who worked there, and some were part-time, some were full-time. 
And I didn't want to be a bartender. I just liked the lifestyle. And it gave us access to great things, the nightclubs, the galleries, etc. So it was very, very different. That was, that's how it started. And to be honest, I basically followed Dick around for maybe the next 10 years. I must actually say, because I did go to Fred's at that period. I wasn't one of those glamorous guests you had, but I'm, I said this to Dick and he said, uh, oh, and he started talking about it. And I said, well, it's no point talking about it because I can't remember a single thing about going there because that's how good it was. I think, to be honest, most of the time that we were there, we were not doing it to drink. I mean, everybody who worked there was very professional at their job. They delivered drinks. They were Dick's drinks. So they were very good drinks. But we also partied, partied, partied really hard. Yeah. Partied with the guests really hard, you know, and went out all night long. And I slept most of the day if I wasn't in the university library sleeping in there reading a book or whatever. I stayed at Fred's for four or five years. I think I basically stayed the whole duration of Dick's tenure there. And I think it was the longest job he ever did. What we also used to do at the same time is we'd go do shifts in the Groucho Club. And again... Dick had previously been at the Groucho and at Zanzibar, and so we would spend our time working between the three of them. If there was an event on at the Groucho Club that was exciting, we'd do a shift there for some private party or whatever it was. And interestingly, I've been watching a documentary on the BBC about this, called The Sensationalist, about the young British art movement coming up, and a lot of it echoes what was going on in the restaurant and the drink world and that revitalisation of areas like Soho, and then obviously Shoreditch. But I went off, after I left university, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I worked in Fred's, basically partying for four or five years. I did some sort of like, you know, night school type stuff, and I did some jewellery and photography and things. Then I started working for, for fashion photographers for a while. And that's a sort of like poverty jet set lifestyle. So I would leave some squat that I lived in in London and disappear off to New York and stay in some very glamorous Ian Schrager-style hotel for a month. Or I'd go out to the Chateau Marmont in Los Angeles for a month. I had no money, so I'd always have to come back and work. So wherever Dick went to, I'd come back and he'd go, I'll give you a job. And so I basically ended up working for Dick constantly in almost every single bar he worked in until about 2000. I would travel, come back, work with him for a couple of months, then go travel again. Um, And I used to work for a a big surfing and snowboarding photographer as well. So I used to spend a month surfing and a month snowboarding every year. And then I'd come back and work in bars. I mean, I think the most important bar was straight after Fred's. The one that made cocktails glamorous was the Atlantic Bar. I just, you know, it was a seismic moment when that bar opened in London in that it was very exclusive. You had to queue to get in, but it was open to everybody. It wasn't a private members club. So, you know, you had the Groucho, Zanzibar, Fred's. They were wonderful places to go and party, but you had to be a member or with a member. And you couldn't really blag your way in back then. I mean, in, in the Groucho, you could sneak out of the colony rooms over the roof and get into the snooker room at the Groucho Club. Which is <laughs> you know, that you're talking about that period, sort of the late 80s, early 90s. So, what was what are your observations on the sort of bar scene, the cocktail scene in in London at that time? What sort of things were people doing? Were they taking cocktails seriously, or were they? What what, what do you remember? No, I mean I, I don't think people really did take cocktails that seriously. And when if you think about the drinks, the late eighties, I think when we opened Fred's, everybody talked about a place I'd never been to because I was too young, which was Peppermint Park in Covent Garden, which. I had been there. Yeah. <laughs> a few of the guys who worked on the bar at Fred's had worked at Peppermint Park, which was a big sort of like rapid turnover, daiquiris, like that sort of blended daiquiris, but pretty good quality, I've heard, and quite good fun. So when you we were in Fred's, it was a very classic cocktail list that Dick had. And again, if you listen to Dick talk, everybody believe, you again, imagine that everybody was drinking brambles and espresso martinis. They weren't. That didn't come till later. They were drinking sea breezes. Cranberry juice was the thing that had just arrived in, and it seemed like this magical elixir from America that we'd never heard of. I mean, the fact that it has no cranberries in it and it's rubbish, <laughs> it was irrelevant. It was, you know, everybody was drinking sea breezes, Long Island iced teas, even in this private club. You could get good martinis and things like that because Dick would, you know, encourage you to sell those type of drinks, but most people didn't want them. They wanted pink, fluffy stuff. 
It was more about the fashion, wasn't it? And, it was and being about, out and it being It was all seen. about lifestyle and fashion and art and music. And it all blended together. I mean, I think what's great about that whole period, and again, it's watching that program, is that the music business and that cool Britannia, Oasis, Blur, all that sort of crap that went on in the in the 90s, and then the art business at the same time being the dominant force on the globe, pulled all the other industries up along with it. And the Atlantic, when you went into the Atlantic, I mean, I remember the glamour of the building, that beautiful Art Deco building. When you saw it in the daylight, it was a, you know, flea pit. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, the carpets were threadbare. But Oliver Payton, who ran it, was excellent because what he did, he had great art from some of the young British artists hanging up in there. So he made it look really glamorous at night. And the people there made it look glamorous. So it was all about that. It yeah. was a very eclectic mix. It was not very, I don't think it was a massively tribal London at that point. I think it was a, it was a much smaller set of people who were going out. It was a very diverse mix of people going out. There were no, you know, if you went out, you know, I used to go to places like Taboo with Lee Bowery. I used to hang out with all these guys from the Ballet Rombert and Michael Clark and go to, you know, and this was going into rave culture. We'd go out with silver crash helmets on and Michael Clark's costumes from his ballets. You could get away with that. And there were only certain things. So on certain nights of the week, it was a certain club in a certain place. The Café de Paris, before it became quite a glamorous place, was another nightclub that you went to. But again, you drank sea breezes, vodka and tonic, gin and tonic, vodka and soda. There were no cocktail cocktails. I mean, I think the Atlantic was the first place where I remember it being all about cocktails. And Oliver was very keen on that. And I also just remember seeing the fact that a bartender's name was above part of the door. So I worked in Dick's Bar, obviously, because I worked with Dick. And that was the first time I'd even thought that you could have your name above a door as a bartender. We didn't, you know, we didn't know about the history of bars back then. We didn't know of Harry's Bar and all these sorts of things. You just knew what happened in London. Mm. So when did it become a career for you? You know, because before you were saying that... Very, very late. <laughs> I continued meandering around. I always worked with Dick. So I, I worked in the Atlantic with him and met wonderful people. And there were really good people there. And out of the Atlantic, obviously, came bars like Lab with Dre Masso and Douglas, etc. They were all part of the Atlantic thing. And then Alphabet came out of there because Spike Marchant was the, from my memory, the stock manager for the place. So all the bars that would become important a few years later came out of the Atlantic and Dick. And then I basically worked with him constantly on and off. So we did that. We worked in a place called Detroit in Covent Garden for a long time. We had big circle discs on the ceiling. It was like a bat cave. We worked in, I went, worked in that venue twice with Dick. We worked there once and then we left and then we all came back a few months later um, when the owners had sort of like decided they couldn't do it themselves. I then worked with him in a place called The Flamingo. It's not in the book that's about Dick that's just come out, but it was a really wonderful bar. And it was, I think the first time I remember really taking an interest in how you made a drink was in that bar. And it was obsessed by David Endery's book, The Fine Art of Mixing Drinks. And I just remember one night staying behind with Dick after everybody else had left and deciding that we were going to make a Bacardi cocktail with Havana Club. So, I mean, don't think it matters, but, you know, with Havana Club, because that was his favourite go-to rum, and it was a three-year-old. And we spent four hours trying to make a good version of this one drink, using more dilution, changing the ratios slightly, and although at the time I really didn't give a monkeys about it, I now look back at it and go, that was the point where I realised that there was something in drinks that you could do something that was more complex. It wasn't as simple as looking up a recipe, copying that recipe, giving it to a customer. There was a big thought process that went into it. And certainly when the way Dick worked, that was what was going into what he was thinking. I literally copied his recipes and made them as fast as I could. That was my job. That was a bit of a, a light bulb moment. But I continued meandering around. So I, I didn't really start working full-time in a bar. I sort of like kept coming back, working part-time for Dick. And then somebody I knew, so Kevry and Jasper Ayers, who by this point had set up a consultancy company, I think. So at that time, they were the only consultants along with the gorgeous group, Robbie and Jason Fendick. They said, do you want to go and run the Cobden Club in Notting Hill? And it suited my lifestyle. So I went and worked in the Cobden Club. And so there I worked on the bar, but I was the bar manager and it was a, it was a full-time job. I did, you know, eight 
seven or eight shifts a week, you know, stock takes, all that sort of stuff, did the menus and things. And I still was hesitant as to whether I wanted to do it. But again, I worked with an incredible guy called Orlando Campbell, who was a marvellous aristocratic lunatic, artist, art collector, knew everybody, had a black book. You know, he could just pick up the phone and phone Lucy and Freud and Lucy and Freud would pop round. So again, it was partly the lifestyle. I worked there for a couple of years and then I got called out of the blue, probably 98, 99, by Carebury and Jasper saying, look, we're going to open this place called Shea in Mayfair on St. James's Street. Do you want to come and run it? Uh, I went there and I thought, okay, I'm going to do this now. And by that point, Lab Lab had happened and was happening and was amazing. Alphabet was happening and had happened and was amazing. The Met Bar had just opened from my memory because Gabriel and Jasper had opened that and I'd been going there when I was at the Cobden Club. Pharmacy had opened, so I'd do shifts with Dick in the pharmacy from time to time. And then I thought, maybe I ought to really do this. And the, the owner of Shea, who is now a friend of mine, was a wonderful guy who just basically let me do what I wanted to do. And although we had Jasper and Carebury as the consultants who set up the original list, I had an amazing team of bartenders and we were massively successful for a little while. I think we won Evening Standard Bar of the Year three years in a row or something. And, you know, I had the, the wonderful Danny Smith working with me, who I would still count as one of the world's greatest bartenders and greatest disasters in the same sentence. And it was great fun, but it was serious. It was a proper job. So how how has it changed? Because, you, you know, th- they were very select bars at that time and you can name all of them that were at that time now it's completely different how would you say that the London bar scene has changed from the time that you've been serious about bartending and actually bartending being taken seriously well I think that is the big difference you know that that, from 87 till 2000 I don't think anybody who worked in a bar wanted to work in a bar there were very few people. I think, you know, you can say Robbie and Jason were consultants, so they had worked in bars, and then they'd worked out a niche where they didn't actually have to work in the bars anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gabri and Jasper did that very early. I mean, they were very young when they decided, they, you know, they did the Met Bar, got burnt out by the lifestyle of the Met Bar, and set up a consultancy company at the age of 21 and 24 or something. Very, very young. Most people still weren't doing, wanting to do that. And then I think around, it is around that point in 2000, Henry was working up at German Street. He wanted to work in bars. I would, by that point, decide I want to work in bars. Tony Canigliari was working in bars. I think he was working in Eastler and Knightsbridge. You know, the guys at the Met Bar were working in the bar and it was their job. Ben was doing columns for the Times, I think, because of the Met Bar stuff. So there was a little bit more of a status around it because it was it was seen as a dead-end job. And I think... Well, the other things you have to remember is there was a big difference and a big schism between bartenders who'd been mentored by Dick and then gone on to open Lab and all the bars that we've mentioned, and the other bartending scene, which was basically the guys in the Savoy, the Peter Dorelli, Salvatore, Gilberto, Pretti, the, the old school UKBG guys. Because I remember when, we, when bars like Lab and Shea and the Met Bar started to get good press, we were invited to join the UKBG, and nobody did. And we used to refuse to join it. So there was this schism. They were seen as the old school, and we would go there. Also, I would go out with Dick, even in the 80s and 90s. We'd go to these bars to enjoy a drink and to look at what they were doing. But we were just like, that's not what we want to do. We don't want to dress in that way. That We don't want to conform to those rules. You were kind of the Britpop of the yeah, we, we basically thought we, yeah, we, you know, we, those were the circles we hung around in. You know, when I finished work, I went and drank in the Met Bar or in the Groucho Club with the guys who were making the music and making the art. You know, I used to do all the, the parties for all the Turner Prize winners in warehouses in Shoreditch. I mean, not making cocktails. Yeah, we did make a couple of cocktails, but it was mainly opening bottles of Beck's beer and serving them cheap wine. I was, <laughs> I, was I think every t- Turner Prize party I did, the person who was expected to win didn't win it. So I did Tracy's when she didn't win. I did Gary Hughes. I did loads of parties with all those. And we thought we were part of that thing. But art and and cocktails, it's very synergistic anyway, isn't it? Yeah. It it follows one another around. And it was, you know, part of this thing. You know, we didn't travel the world at that point. I think, you know, the the origins of moving, travelling around, 
you know, that, that's what people do or have been doing for the last 20 years is bartenders get on airplanes and go do guest shifts or seminars and tales of the cocktail. There weren't bar shows. There was the bar show in Islington. And I, again, I remember very distinctly going to that, which I think must have been class. So it must have been 25 years ago, about 25 years ago. And you'd go there and then there would be, again, the UKBG people would come in with Salvatore and walk around in their very smart clothes. And then there'd be this motley crew of raggle taggle, raggle, <laughs> hungover, drunk, drug addled bartenders from the really cool bars wandering. And then we'd all get on stage and do seminars, but they were very different. You know, Salvatore is never on stage with anybody like me. He would hardly talk to me. He'd talk to Dick. I mean, Dick was the only pivotal point where those UKBG guys knew Dick and knew how important he was. Ah, that's interesting, actually, because that's when the whole thing changed anyway, the respect for him. And also because it was translated down to ordinary audiences, I guess, rather than just hotel bars. But tell us, what, what what's about the scene now? What do you feel and see? What's exciting? I mean, I think that there's never been a... Well, if we take out the last year and a half or two years because of COVID and now Ukraine, and that's not a good thing. But I think there's never been a better scene than it is now in terms of the quality and the number of quality bars you can go to. And the fact that also the bartenders are doing it as a career that has opened, you know, that's not something that when I was 20, you could have conceived of doing unless you were stepping into the Savoy and wanted to become Peter Dorelli. Now, it's a, it's a career path and it's a good thing. I think that is excellent. I think the quality of the drinks out there, I'd like to say it's better. I think it is better generally across the board. I think the ability to communicate globally constantly has been a great thing. I find it slightly annoying now, if I'm honest, because I don't think anything occurs naturally. There's, you know, you never have time to allow something to bed in, take hold, and then establish itself, and then really become concrete. One of the things that I think you're really well known for is your championing of sort of British ingredients. And I can re- I can remember one of the first times I came across you giving a talk, and I'm thinking maybe this is 12, 14 years ago, and you were making drinks I thought were classic drinks, like I don't know daiquiris or something, but then you were using all these things like blackberries and really sort of beautiful British ingredients in there. And I just wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your thinking on that. The thinking on things like the the promotion of Englishness or Britishness or Europeanness is two-sided. So there was one bit that when you worked in the early 2000s, cocktail culture was based in America. You know, so you heard of Dale DeGroff. Wonderful person. You heard of Dale DeGroff. You heard of Gary Regan. You heard of all these big names in America and they were getting paid a lot of money. And the cocktail was American. And they took hold of it and said, it's ours. And therefore, whatever you do in Europe, you are substandard to us because we originated it. Whether that's true or not is an irrelevance. But that was how the feeling felt. And so part of my thought, as soon as I could learn about European drinks culture dating back prior to the 19th century and the word cocktail, etc., becoming... I was very proud of the idea of punch and things like that and discovering a European drinking sensibility. So I pioneered that in a very confrontational way. I may want to say, you know, bullish going out in Union Jack shirts and ramming it down American folks saying, you didn't invent this. We did. We made these. Because I love the punch as a, a drinks concept. So that was one side of it was basically trying to stick two fingers up to Americans saying that the Europeans had never had a drinking culture because we had. And so that was part of it. But the other part of it is, again, very early on, even in the year 2000, when I opened or around when I started working with Shea, I started working with chefs and good chefs. You know, I worked with Giorgio Lacatelli for a while. And then, you know, variously, I've worked with chefs and they were all about ingredient. And as bartenders, we were about ingredient in a bottle. It didn't matter. It was already preserved. They were not about that. They were about how you used a fresh ingredient. And so I became obsessed by fresh ingredients. And then it narrowed in on something that was British because that was where I was. And therefore, the British seasonality, and then it became forage British seasonality. It was sort of like honing in on it. And I do think, you know, that still is something that you see. And, you know, and I love that. I'm slightly annoyed, and people, people always bring up the Union Jack shirt wearing and the two fingers to America. That was just a way of saying that we're just as good as you and we are valid, et cetera. 
but it got the, a big noise. But then the secondary bit was getting good quality, fresh ingredients and using things that were British rather than to import a lychee, find something else that might have those flavour components. It happened in Hawksmoor prior to that. I mean, you know, I'd done a few consultancies prior to that where I found it important to use those British ingredients in other drinks. I think it's also part of the multicultural society that the bar world is. And I know people will beat on about it. it's not multicultural enough, but I've worked with so many different people from so many other parts of the planet. They all bring an influence in. And therefore, you know, if you have a Cuban come in, he knows how to make a daiquiri, but he doesn't necessarily know what a fresh strawberry tastes like. So for him to make a fresh strawberry daiquiri with one picked at the height of its season in the UK is a revelatory moment for him and for me, because he has a technique from Cuba. So it's that influences or people coming in from Kosovo in the early 2000s and Serbia and bringing their ideas of fruit brandies over and then going out in the park and making your own version of it. So I think those things were happening. They just weren't trumpeted either. And that was also something that I found very influential. Uh, speaking of ingredients, you've got your wonderful gin, which we love, Heppel. Can you tell us, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Heppel gin. Heppel gin is a very proud, I'm very proud of Heppel gin for many reasons. Firstly, I have wonderful business partners. So Valentine Warner, the chef, and Walter Riddle, who owns the estate where we make it, and Chris Garden, who's my distiller, who was ex at Sipsmith. But it was um, a gin that was sort of like, in the mix, baby, for a few years. And it was trying to work out how we could take these wonderful botanicals that we have growing up at Heppel. It's a very wild place up in the Northumbrian National Park and translate that into a, a sort of like classic style gin. I mean, I love classic London dry style juniper forward gins. Um, we have wonderful juniper up at Heppel, but without the constraints of the traditional route of going and buying a, you know, thousand litre copper pot still and calling it Mildred. Not saying that's a bad thing. We do have a copper pot still, but we don't only use copper pot still. Um, the copper pot still is 500, 600 year old technology and is wonderful at certain things. But there are other technologies that you can embrace that you can augment the flavours of what you come out of the copper pot still with. So I was, you know, we have a rotor vac, you know, vacuum still, a very big one which does certain things in capturing very light aromatic flavours. So we then blend that back into what we make on the copper pot still. And then we have another thing where we use carbon dioxide called a supercritical gas extract. And that's the solvent that extracts the flavours from the botanicals. And you get more flavour and you get better quality flavours by using those three techniques and combining them. And so I'm really proud of it. I mean, it, it's wonderful. And I say that myself. It's delicious. Yeah, I love it. I think it's very easy for me to say it's wonderful, but it took me two and a half, well, me and Chris and Ke and Carebury and Val, took us two and a half years to come up with a recipe that we were happy with. You know, so we tested it constantly for two and a half years and it evolved over that time. And now I'm very, very proud of it. So it's really nice to make your own product. And not bad for a person that didn't want to be in the drinks industry to actually have done all of the things that you've done and produced a fantastic gin. Yeah, I mean, people keep saying, what are you most proud of? And, and Heppel would be one of the things. Um, but also making things, going to Absolute. I mean, I worked with Absolute for a long time and making my own range of vodkas for Absolute. And this is back in 2011. You know, they allowed me to put my name on their bottle and essentially be able to destroy their brand if I was, felt like it. It was quite trusting of them to let me do it. That's almost the thing I'm most proud of because that, again, knocked down some walls by doing that. And I think it's knocking down the walls, which is good. And I think I have knocked down a few walls in my bullish, stupid, <laughs> big-headed way. And Absolute Craft was something I was very proud of. The stuff I made with Havana Club, the rum I made with Havana Club, I'm very proud of. I think it's really good. And again, that's something else now that modern bartenders can do. There are great bartender brands out there, and they own their own brands. And I think that is wonderful. I think it's been an, an amazing journey from that late 80s through to, where are we now, early 2020s and yeah, um, I'm 55 now it's been a long time <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just to, to round off because we talked a, a, a little bit about sort of the evolution of the London scene and just because we're talking about London I just wonder if you could just briefly go gaze into your crystal ball and tell us what you think the future holds for us as a cocktail city well, I think, unfortunately, the near future is not so bright, is it, because of COVID and because of Ukraine, etc. I think that's awful. But I think, you know, I've lived now through sort of like two stars of recession. I started work in the post sort of like end of the Thatcher area 
recession in London. And then obviously there's a 2008 crash. And things do evolve out of that. And they do become better. It takes a while and it's hard for a while. So I think things will naturally evolve and become better. I also think, you know, sustainability has to be taken seriously. And lots of bars are doing it. And there are some great flagships for it globally and in London for sustainability. But it's, you know, big brands need to start doing it and taking it very seriously because it only works if, if big companies do it. It doesn't work if only one little bar in Shoreditch has been you know, completely green. Everybody has to be more green. So I think that's an important thing to happen. And, and, it, and it will be happening. It's, you know, it's on everybody's minds and it's interest for everybody. And great drinks will come out of that. I think, you know, you look at what Thai and Elementary do with the way they purchase and the way they recycle ingredients through drinks throughout the season. I think that's an inspiration. So I think it's a great time. It's just I think the next year is going to be quite tough. But I also think that, you know, oddly, after every recession, you get a burgeoning of talent. I think the future is optimistic. You know, bartending is a career now. And I think that's a big change, a really big change that I've seen in my lifetime. And I think that's a very good change. And the bartending scene is more vibrant than it's ever been. We are more globally connected than we've ever been. It's certainly a much better place than it was when I started. Yeah. And it's great for consumers as well because they can go anywhere. So I think it's the best time to be a a consumer of cocktails and spirits that there ever has been. You know, and you can walk into a pub and get a decent drink made for you. Not every pub. I still quite like a shitty gin and tonic with a slice of old, as for nostalgia's sake. But you can generally (laughs) go and get a decent drink almost everywhere now. That's been an amazing journey you've just taken us on, Nick. And uh, thank you for sharing it with us. And also to remind us about some of those great bars that we were lucky enough to come across. But now, as you say, the bars today are brilliant. So thanks for sharing your story with us. No, thank you very much, guys. It's been a real pleasure. The latest issue of the Cocktail Lovers magazine is available now. As always, we're looking at the people, places, products and much, much more that we're loving in the cocktail world. To get your print or digital copy, simply visit thecocktaillovers.com slash magazine.